We're continuing our study of the First Corinthians, and you may have noticed that uh, the First Corinthians deals with many practical issues that would be relevant to any Christian's life, relevant to any church's life. And we've already addressed some very specific issues and problems in the Corinthian church. Last week in our study of chapter 5, we dealt with the problem of sexual immorality in the context of the city of Corinth, which was a city that was known for decadence and immoralities of all types and particularly sexual type. And there was a particular case of an incest of a man having an affair with his stepmother. This was unheard of. This was a blasphemous. But they were tolerating this kind of act. And in addition to that, there was such a sense of audacity about it, sense of arrogance, that brazen sort of attitude that accompanied this type of sin. And so Apostle Paul reprimands the church for being complacent and lacking that discipline, refusing to discipline this man and the woman. And he points out the importance of the church maintaining purity and uh, dissolving all kinds of impurities like sexual immorality so that the church may have a true testimony to the world. Today, in the text that's given, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, we see another problem. And this time, the problem has to do with the disputation between Christians so that they would actually take such matters to the worldly court. And again, the church is very complacent about it. They're not playing any particular role in this, settling the problems within. They're taking it to the public, and it's becoming a thing of a great humiliation and shame for the body of Christ. And so he points out today in this lesson that the church is responsible to maintain order, and show the world how we can manage things like discipline, things like arbitration, and that the church needs to be a model to the world. Paul begins by pointing out the problem that we Christians have with the worldly litigation. In verse 1, he says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now, in today's world, especially in the context of the United States that I'm very familiar with, you know, the talking about suing one another, taking the matters to the court, and the idea of lawsuit is very, very common, even among Christians. I hear Christians constantly talking loosely, like, well, sue me. I'll sue you. And they would be suing one another. They seem to have no problem with that. But here, Paul makes a big issue of this. He starts out by saying, do you dare? And the term here is torma. And it has to do with summing up the nerve to do something so audacious, 
How could you do something like this, Apostle Paul is saying? I can't believe that you are resorting to this. Now, of course, Paul is talking about the matter of civil case. This has nothing to do with the criminal case, because if it is a criminal case, then the world can make their judgment about that. The world and society have their own rules and regulations, laws to protect the citizens in the case of some kind of criminal act. And Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, clearly defends the court of the law, the power of the law in the society to handle criminal cases. Here we're not talking about criminal cases, we're talking about civil cases. But you know that even in civil cases like divorce or child custody situation or property ownership, there's a matter of legality that needs to be settled and oftentimes in the court of law. But what Paul is saying is before you take it to the court, before you go through the litigation process, why don't you arbitrate this amongst yourself first? Try to come to an agreement. Try to come to a consensus. Try to negotiate it. If possible, reconcile it. Settle the matter before you finalize that in the court in an official sense. Paul is especially concerned because these cases in Corinth obviously involved the Christians going against fellow Christians. And of course, he's not saying that we should never make an appeal of our personal cases to the secular court. This is not what he's saying. He himself made an appeal. In the book of Acts, we see him making an appeal to King Agrippa. He made an appeal to Rome, to Caesar for his case. So there is a place for that. But Paul is adamant about prioritizing the church's role over the secular court. He says, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Here the term ungodly is literally unrighteous or unjust before God. In other words, this court is led by people who are not justified, people who are not saved. Thus here, Paul is not saying that all kinds of secular courts and the pagan courts and their judges are all bad and evil and corrupt. That's not what he's saying at all. It's just that they don't understand the language of Christianity because they're not saved. They're not redeemed. They do not know Jesus Christ. They're not based upon the Word of God. So they need to be differentiated from the way the Christian community handles it, which is God-centered values, wisdom, and discernment. This is the way Christian community operates. Now, the civil cases have to do with violation of personal rights, have to do with the issue of personal possessions and personal offenses. But once again, the problem was that the Christians, instead of dealing with their disputes within their own community, they were bringing these private matters to the public. And in those days, according to the scholars, when they brought these matters, they brought them to the marketplace. That is like the town square in the public. And they set up this throne called the Bema seat. And the judge would be seated there. And all kinds of people would come to watch 
and to spectate. So, for Christians to come against each other, when the Christians were underdogs in those days, they were the minorities in those days, they were being persecuted anyway and misunderstood by the public. And for Christians to be at war with one another and bringing it out to the marketplace, this would bring great shame to the church. This would affect the church in the negative. And that, then the issues become the talk of the town. It becomes sensational and scandalous. It would become the tabloid material in today's equivalent. In the 21st century, it would be in the news. It would be in the internet, SNS, documentaries. And so the Christians' lawsuits against each other would bring shame and ridicule to Christianity and to the name of Jesus Christ. Now you understand the context now, you see. So what's the solution? Well, let's look at verses 2 to 4. Paul says, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Here, what Paul is saying is that we have this great honor and privilege of participating in the end-time judgment along with Christ. You see, our state of union with Christ is so that we are now co-heirs with Christ. And if Christ is the final judge, then we will be ruling and judging with him. I don't know what Jesus will delegate to us, us the body. He will be the premier judge, but we, the body of Christ, we will be involved in judging the world, that is the unbelievers. And on that day, Christians will be vindicated from all the sins and persecutions that they have received from the world. But Paul talks about judging even of the angels. And obviously he's not talking about good angels. He's talking about evil angels. And Satan and the demons will one day be humiliated. And they will have to admit defeat as we are placed in the position of judging them. So what Paul is saying is that this kind of glorious destiny is reserved for us on that day of judgment. And if we have that kind of authority, if we have that kind of power on that day, then what a shame it is that we can't even make judgments about these little issues and petty issues. And I am not saying that all of these issues are necessarily little or petty. It may be a big deal for a lot of these people. But in comparison, Paul is saying, it's nothing, really. And besides, the church has plenty of wisdom and resources. And we have the Spirit of Christ helping us to make these judgments. And we should be able to arbitrate or mediate these situations. So we need to all go to the church to make the appeals first. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 18. Do you remember last week? That if you have an issue, then you bring it up personally, one-on-one, with the person 
that you're having tension or you're having problem with. And then if that doesn't go through, then you bring two or three witnesses, work together to come to some kind of reconciliation. If not, then bring the whole congregation into this. You can't have a court of arbitration right there in the church. I know that oftentimes uh, in the church situations here in Korea and in the United States, that's usually something that is reserved for the denomination. When it can be solved within the church context, local church context, they bring it to the denomination. But what Paul would prefer is that you should have enough people with wisdom among you to be able to arbitrate this kind of situation. So what Paul is advocating is that there is a proper protocol by which we can make wise decisions. We can all be humble and conscientious and led by the Spirit of God and allow the whole process of arbitration to happen. But the problem is that when the church or the denomination is influenced by the worldly values and political motives and personal gain, that things don't turn out fair, things don't turn out to be holy of a process. And so what I would like to recommend to anybody, whether it be a local church or a family situation or group of people who are gathered together in the name of Christ, is to develop a godly, Christ-centered, spirit-led way of arbitration. Come up with a way. And I've been involved in some situations like this in the past. So, so I can tell you from my own experience that if we are willing and we would all humble ourselves to the Spirit of God, leading us and guiding us, and be centered on Christ, be based and grounded in the Word of God, there is a way. We have all the resources. We have all the wisdom. We don't have to take it to the worldly or pagan court. And so likewise, as I mentioned last week, the church should have a way of disciplining their members, even to excommunicate them. There has to be some kind of procedure. Likewise, we also need to make room for church arbitration and mediation. In other words, we need a lot of counseling that needs to go into this process to help the members to get reconciled. Let's continue on in verses 5 to 6. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of the unbelievers. What Paul is pointing out is that there is this lack of wisdom within the church. He's rebuking the church for lacking its responsibility and lacking wisdom to bring some kind of solution to this matter. And the real concern here, once again, is that such a display of lawsuit in the public would cause bad reputation of Christianity. In other words, the Corinthian church needs to really understand what shame is about. And for that matter, the opposite concept of honor and reputation is about. Have some kind of standard for integrity and truth, operating with humility and holiness, 
what it means to be truly Christ-like. And yet they had no shame. That's the problem. What we see in the churches today and denominations today, and when it becomes a public scandal, a shame for the church in the sight of the public and the media, it's oftentimes because the church has lost this sense of shame. They're not looking at this situation and realizing how shameful this is. When they're fighting and bickering, arguing, and selfishly and self-indulgently tugging at one another to win the case. So the conclusion is this, simply that the public lawsuit among Christians will cause such a loss of Christian credibility before the world. And later, when we try to persuade the world to see the truth of what we are saying, the world will not buy that. Because we'll continue to lose points before the sight of the Lord. So first problem is that of lack of wisdom within the church. But second problem is the lack of virtue within the church. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Wow, these words just spoke volumes to me because I've actually faced this. Even during my residency here in Korea, in the past 10 years, I've actually seen this in the news right before my sight in some kind of church setting. I've actually seen how people would operate this way. Let me read this once again. The very fact that you have lawsuits amongst you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And it's all war. It's all hell. So we need to weigh the consequences of our action especially if it has to do with lawsuit. How would the public see this? How would the public understand this? And we need to exercise wisdom and discernment. And here, the key word is self-denial, patience, mercy, and forgiveness. And as Jesus mentioned in chapter 5 of Matthew, that if you bring something of an offering to present before the Lord. And there you remember that a brother has something against you, then go immediately and get that reconciled before you bring that offering. So the priority has to do with peacemaking and reconciliation over justice and vengeance. And only by this we can find opportunity to proclaim and demonstrate the essence of the gospel. I must say in the United States, it is very difficult to give up our rights. And I grew up in the United States most of my years, and so I know, even I, a Christian and Christian leader, I find myself talking like, that's my right! It's our human right! It's our individual's right! As though that is the most godly thing, as though that is the premier commandment. 
It is not. The premier commandment is to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. To the degree that I must be willing to relinquish my rights, to uphold the rights of others. And this involves trusting and surrendering all matters unto Jesus. So we need to ask this question. In this situation, what would Christ want me to do? How would Christ want me to handle this? How can I do it in a way that is consistent instead of immoral and self-indulgent, selfish way of operation? How can I make a difference and that is different and distinguishable from the unbelievers. Paul clearly points out, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Then he begins to specify the type of sins that the Corinthian churches, the members are still struggling with. In verses 9 to 11, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, near the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is the root problem? What is the real motivation behind many of these disputes, even these lawsuit cases? And I think Paul would say it has to do with this human selfishness. It has to do with a worldly mindset. It has to do with self-intelligence and self-centered mindset. All these sins, the common denominator is self-indulgence and self-centeredness. You might have noticed here a reference to homosexual sin. According to NIV, it simply says men who have sex with men. But actually in Greek, there are two terms here. One is malakoi, and that has with male prostitutes. And the second is arsenokoi, and that has with the sin of sodomizing or homosexual practice. Both of them are referring to homosexuality. Now, I don't want to make a big issue over this, but I do need to say something about this. I know it is definitely not politically correct to be even talking about homosexuality in today's pulpit. But I need to say something about this. We need to understand, during the time of Paul, there was a, a tremendous decadence in the entire Roman Empire. It is said that out of the 15 emperors of Rome, up to the time of Paul, some 14 of them were bisexual and homosexual. And the Nero, the current emperor, he actually had a boy castrated to become his wife. And he, he also became a wife to another man. So how perverse is that? And so, we need to understand that 
Homosexuality is a sin that is very clear here in the New Testament. It's very obvious in the Old Testament. Now today I know that people talk about loving, caring homosexual relationships. And I've actually seen that in New York City when I was in, in the ballet world. I saw a lot of gays. I had some friends who were gays and we saw lesbians and transvestites, all kinds of scenes. I have seen that. I have witnessed that. And I think I understand when they say loving, caring, homosexual relationship. They're genuine about it. They want to commit themselves and make the vow of marriage even. But what does Paul say? This is not me saying it. What does the Word of God say? This is New Testament. We're not talking about the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul clearly condemns homosexual acts of all kinds. It doesn't matter if, even if it's loving, caring, homosexual relations. Now, having said that, I want to remind you that homosexual sins are listed along with other sins. Sexual immorality, this has to do with the heterosexual sins as well. Adultery, idolatry, and other common sins like thievery, greed, drunkenness, slandering, and swindling. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this, that homosexuality is clearly pronounced as sin, according to Paul, clearly in the New Test Old Testament as well, but having said that, at the same time, we should not single out homosexuality as uniquely perverse because what Paul is saying is that all sins are to be condemned. Thus, if homosexuals cannot enter into the kingdom of God, then the rest of the others cannot as well. Are they sexually immoral? Are they adulterers? Are they idolaters? Are they thieves? Are they greedy people? Are they drunkards, slanderers, swindlers? And we know a lot of these people in the churches. Well, if the homosexuals are going to go to hell, then the rest of these people are going to go to hell as well. Let's not just single out the homosexuals. This is the problem today. Oftentimes, homosexuals are singled out as this horrendous sin. And it is. Of course, sin against nature as God had created, of course. But it is not the only sin. The book of Revelation in chapter 28, again, lists all these sins and says these people, they must remain outside where eternal destination is that of lake of fire or the second death. Talking about hell. But what Paul is saying here is that this is the life of the Corinthians in the past. He says, and that is what some of you were in the past. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now they have been saved and converted. Therefore, they should live according to such a sanctified life, worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God. So what should you do if you belong to this category? What should you do if you, your sin is in this catalog of sins that Paul clearly identifies? Well, repentance, that's, that's what it's called for. But without repentance, 
We cannot just enter into the kingdom of God. We need repentance. We need to be washed of our sins. We need to genuinely repent of our ways and be converted in the process. Because the whole idea here has to do with the judgment of God. And sometimes we're so much more fearful of the judgment that comes from the worldly court and the loss that we may experience. Or we may jeopardize our positions, our rights, losing it out in the court. But I suppose what Paul is saying is that we should be more fearful of the great judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to judge us on that final day, but he is judging us even now. And if we belong to this category of sins, then we should repent right away, big time. And not just point the finger to the homosexuals. If it's simply sexual immorality that's happening in the church, heterosexual relationship, sex before marriage, or adultery, or idolatry, or whatever, we need to repent. We need to repent big time. Now, what does this have to do with the way the Corinthians were operating, bringing these matters, their issues, to the worldly court? I believe Paul is saying, you guys belong to the same category. You're operating like the people of the world. Instead of repenting big time for what you're doing, fighting with one another, arguing with one another, slandering one another, lying to one another, being greedy and indulgent about one another, being temperamental about this issue, being angry, being wrathful. I would say Paul is in a way saying that all of this belongs to this category of sin. So remove yourself away from this by repenting and being sober-minded and being teachable to the Spirit of God who will guide us in the proper way of arbitration within the body of Christ. Amen? Now this uh, is one of the most difficult lessons that I've ever preached on. And uh, rightly so, because this is a very difficult issue today in the 21st century. And I could identify with those people who really want to bring things to the court and settle the matter there. Because they got so much wrath inside of them, feeling that justice has not prevailed. And sometimes the church is very passive about this, and they just you know, brush their hands and fold their arms. They're not doing anything to help these people. But that doesn't mean we should directly take this to the court. We should bring it before the church, before people of wisdom in the church, and do the very best to arbitrate within us, because we do have the resources. We do have the wisdom. We do have the discernment. We do have the proper heart that is centered on Christ. And I think if we put our hearts to it, I believe that we can solve practically any 
of these problems and leave the matter of legality to the court. But anything that has with bickering and disputes that's happening within, we can certainly solve these problems and help our members to solve these problems. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.